0: All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 this morning. If we could all stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 28 of Acts chapter 18. And I'll go ahead and read the first verse and ask that you join with me on the second, and we'll continue every other verse. Acts chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chantria he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." Our Father and our God, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your Word. Uh, Help us to have clarity as we study this passage of Scripture this morning, and uh, help us as we seek to apply it to our lives and to learn the lessons that you have for us from your Word today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts, uh, seeing how God began to spread the Gospel and really establish Christianity in the early years of the Church. We've been following the Apostle Paul primarily over these last few months as we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, Paul was commissioned by God and sent out from the church at Antioch to go to new places uh, with the gospel, with the message of Jesus and the salvation that he offers. And so uh, back in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul uh, leaves Antioch and he goes to the island of Cyprus. Uh, Then he goes up into Antioch of Pisidia, different Antioch, he goes to Iconium Lystra, Derby, these cities uh, up north in uh, uh, the region of Galatia. Uh, then they, after visiting those places and, and starting churches, reaching people with the gospel, they turn around, they head home back to Antioch of Syria, where they started from. And so this is the first missionary journey. After that very first trip, they stayed in Antioch for a period of time before heading out again. Uh, this time, Paul takes Silas with him. And uh, they go upward on land to Derby and Lystra, Iconium, all the places they had been the first time where they had established churches there. And so they go to those churches first, and then they head out westward uh, to new regions that had not yet heard of Christ. And through the leading of the Lord in Acts chapter 16, they sailed to Macedonia. Uh, now they have at this point Luke and Timothy with them. So you got Paul, you got Silas, Luke, Timothy, uh, all traveling. They start a little church there in the city of Philippi, the very first city of Macedonia that they went to. Uh, Then they go to Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, Things got dangerous for Paul very quickly in those places, and so he ends up having to leave Macedonia, heads further south uh, to the region of Achaia, where he preached the gospel to Athens and Corinth. And today we're going to conclude this whole trip. Very quickly, in these last few verses of Acts 18, uh, Paul will leave the city of Corinth, We'll head back home uh, to Antioch with two quick stops along the way, uh, one in Ephesus and one in Jerusalem. And by the end of the chapter, uh, we will have started the third missionary journey of Paul. Maybe you missed that as we were reading. Uh, it's very quickly mentioned there at the end that Paul goes back out again. And so uh, by the end of Acts 18, we're into the third missionary journey. So we're covering a lot of ground here, a uh, very significant period of time as well, as we'll, we'll see in these few verses. We begin in Acts 18, verse 18, which tells us, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, this is in Corinth now, uh, then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, uh, that would be where Antioch is, so he's headed back home now to Antioch, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chentria, he had had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So Paul is headed back home to Syria, to Antioch. Uh, Each of those church planning trips that Paul takes in the book of Acts, he leaves from Antioch and he returns back to Antioch Uh, afterward. This is his home base of operations. Now he's headed back. Uh, He leaves Silas and Timothy behind Uh, in, in Corinth. Perhaps they went back to Thessalonica, Berea, that region. He leaves them there. Uh, and and notice, though, it does say he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. So now you've got Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila sailing away from Corinth, uh, and Paul is headed back home to Antioch. And then it tells us that Paul got a haircut. Now, what in the world uh, is that all about? This must be some kind of haircut if it makes its way into the Bible. Uh, but what this is, is most likely a Nazarite vow. Uh, now, I'm going to show you this from the book of Numbers here in just a minute, but I want to explain it to you first so that hopefully when we get there and you're reading it, it'll make sense to you because uh, it's it's really foreign to our way of thinking. Uh, this is a very Jewish thing, the Nazarite vow. God gave instructions to Moses back in Numbers chapter 6 about this, and basically the idea was that you would dedicate yourself to the Lord for a period of time. It would be sort of like for us as Christians, uh, something like fasting, where we uh, say no to food for a while and dedicate ourselves to God for that period of time. Uh, sort of like this, except with some Jewish ritualism and uh, kind of some, some interesting twists. So the Nazarite vow typically uh, was taken for a period of 30 days, 60 days, or 100 days. And during this time, the person who had taken the vow would drink no wine, uh, they would not cut their hair, and they would not touch any dead things. Those would be ways that you could defile yourself. Uh, during this period of time, so you would let your hair grow out. You would refrain from certain things uh, for this time. Then, at the end, when your vow was done, you would cut your hair and then you would burn it along with some other sacrifices in Jerusalem as a symbol of offering yourself to the Lord. And so, this whole thing is a very Jewish practice filled with uh, symbolism. Uh, here, here's an explanation of all this. Number six, beginning with verse one, the Lord said to Moses, uh, spoke to Moses, saying. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall drink, uh, I'm sorry, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink. He shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine not even the seeds or the skins all the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head until the time it is completed for which he separates himself to the lord he shall be holy he shall let the locks of his hair uh, of of hair of his head grow long all the days that he separates himself to the lord he shall not go near a dead body uh, not even for his mo- uh, father or for his mother, for his brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So there you have those three main things involved with an Nazarite vow. Uh, no wine, not even grapes or juice, uh, no cutting your hair, no razors to touch you, and you are not to be around dead things. Those are the, the three kind of prohibitions during this period of time. Now, after the the period was done and you've completed your vow then, uh, there were some rituals and sacrifices and things that were sort of the completion of this. And this was done initially at the tabernacle in the book of Numbers, then it transitions to the temple uh, later in Israel's history. So at this point in time, when uh, Paul is going through this, it would have been in Jerusalem you would have to go uh, to perform these rituals, Numbers 6, verse 13, just a little further down in the chapter, this is the law of the Nazarite, when the time of his separation has been completed. So he's completed that period of time. He's grown his hair out, not drunk any, any juice, that sort, of, all that stuff uh, for this period of time. Then he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite, so this is the person who's taken that vow, shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket, one unleavened wafer, and he shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration." And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So this was the Nazarite vow. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Uh, Very Jewish uh, practice that's very foreign to us. And it seems like that's what Paul is doing in our text. Back to Acts 18, it says that Paul stayed many days longer. He took his leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Chentria, he had his hair cut. Uh, I'm sorry, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. So, this seems to be uh, the Nazarite vow that Paul was taking. Uh, some things had changed in Jewish law in terms of the, some of the restrictions. You could do this uh, outside of Jerusalem, the, the actual cutting of your hair after the vow. Uh, you just had to take it to the temple uh, afterwards to, to complete uh, the vow. So this sort of thing was done often as a way of expressing thanks to God, which is probably what Paul is doing here. Thanking God for the protection that he had provided for Paul. Uh, Here in Corinth, a year and a half of uh, fruitful ministry, God had protected them and allowed them to start this church. Uh, Now that that period of time had ended uh, for this vow, Paul cuts his hair, uh, but he still needs to take it to Jerusalem in order to complete the ritual, burning it in the temple and offering all those sacrifices So Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem to do this uh, before he will head up to Antioch. Verse 19 says, They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. That's Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, Paul isn't really intending to stay uh, here in the city of Ephesus. He's just sort of stopping here along the way. If you look at the map, you can see uh, he leaves Corinth uh, right up here. He sets sail. He's headed to Jerusalem. And along the way, the ship stops here at Ephesus. And so uh, he's only there really passing through uh, that city. Verse 19 says, they came to Ephesus. He left them there. So Priscilla and Aquila, they were brought with Paul uh, from the city of Corinth. They go to Ephesus, and Paul basically lets them uh, do the work of ministry here in the city. Uh, For a brief time, maybe only one Sabbath day, maybe a few Uh, Paul did some teaching in the synagogues or uh, dialoguing as he typically did, but then he left Priscilla and Aquila to carry on the work here in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Verse 19 says he went into the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews. That word uh, reasoned we've run into a couple of times in the book of Acts. It means to dialogue, uh, to discuss, and so... Uh, Much like I think we do here on on Wednesday nights, it was that sort of a format where Paul would uh, teach and discuss things as a group. There would be questions, there would be answers, and so uh, that was Paul's practice. He would go into synagogues uh, and do this. So Paul does that in Ephesus, but not for very long. Uh, Verse 20 says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Uh, This is quite a reversal of the norm. Usually for Paul, they're trying to get him to leave and he stays. In this case, they're trying to get him to stay and he leaves. Uh, but he's got that hair, remember? He's got to get to Jerusalem and burn that and, and finish his uh, his ritual. So verse 21, on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and he heads down to Jerusalem. Uh, later in the book of Acts, we're going to see this actually in the next chapter, uh, Paul does return to the city of Ephesus. Uh, but I do think it's worth noting What Paul says there in verse 21, I will return to you if God wills. Uh, Paul made plans, but those plans were always submissive to the Lord's will. As James writes in James chapter 4, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Those who have all these plans, these detailed, we're going to do this and then this and then this. James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? For you are a a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Paul understood that his life was in the hands of the Lord. Uh, God had directed him in in times past. Remember, he wanted to go to Bithynia. Uh, He wanted to go to Mysia in Acts 16. And God said, no, uh, don't go there. I want you to go to Macedonia instead. And so while Paul made certain plans and thought ahead of what he wanted to do, Uh, Those plans were always submitted to Christ and to his will for Paul's life. So Paul leaves Ephesus. He tells them, you know, Lord willing, I'd, I'd like to come back to you. And he does about a year later. And basically during that year, Priscilla and Aquila do the work of starting this church here in the city of Ephesus. I think at this point, Paul is following the leading of the Lord. God had made clear to him in previous chapters he wasn't supposed to go to Bithynia. He wasn't supposed to go to Mysia. Uh, Asia. That's one. Of, that's where Ephesus is. Those regions that he had been forbidden to go. He was to take the, the gospel to Macedonia, which is where he just was—Philippi and Berea, Thessalonica. Those places. For whatever reason, this region where Ephesus was, God wanted someone else to reach that area, and Priscilla and Aquila were the perfect people for the job. So they live here in Ephesus for a period of some years. And uh, they, they start this church that Paul later writes the book of Ephesians to. So unlike most of the, the churches that Paul writes letters to, uh, Paul didn't actually start this church. Priscilla and Aquila did. And in fact, sometime later, as Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians from Ephesus, he's in Ephesus at this point, uh, look at what he says there. The churches of Asia, this is 1 Corinthians 16, send you greetings. Aquila and Pris- Prisca, that's Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So in Ephesus there, years later, as Paul is writing this letter, uh, Priscilla and Aquila have a church that's meeting in their home. So back to our text. Paul sails uh, from Ephesus. He heads down to Caesarea. And uh, some manuscripts of verse 21 add a phrase there, depending on what translation you have. It might say uh, something about Paul being determined to get to Jerusalem in time for the upcoming feast. And that may have been the reason Uh, that he left Ephesus instead of staying there for a while. No real way for us to know that for sure, uh, but it's possible. Again, he had to get to Jerusalem to to complete uh, that Nazarite vow, at least. Verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, uh, it says that he landed in Caesarea. Uh, That's right down here. That's the port city closest to Jerusalem. So when it says there in verse 22, he went up and greeted the church, and then he came down, that's talking about Jerusalem. I know Jerusalem's not mentioned there, but you land in Caesarea, the only place you're going up is Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem, uh, completes his Nazarite vow, presumably, uh, and also visits with the church there. Uh, Then he heads back to Antioch. So coming down from Jerusalem, again, New Testament always talks about going up and down from Jerusalem because of the elevation. Uh, Normally when we look at a map and we think going up, we think north, going down, going south. Uh, That's not the way scripture is written. It's talking about elevation there. So he climbs up to Jerusalem. It's a very steep walk if you ever go there. Uh, He goes up to Jerusalem, visits with the church there, and then he heads back to Antioch, his home base. Uh, After all of the missionary trips we've seen, Paul always returns back to the city of Antioch and spends some time with the church there before heading out. So just so you can get oriented, Antioch is right here. Uh, This is basically the whole missionary journey now has been completed. He's come down to Jerusalem, and then he returns uh, back home to Antioch. Uh, Verse 23, after spending some time there, this is in Antioch, he departed. uh, And and by the way, that time period there in verse 23 uh, is about a year from AD 52, the early summer, to the spring of AD 53, and it would take the rest of our time here today to explain to you why that is. I will spare you the details, but it's about a year there in verse 23. So he spent some time in Antioch. Uh, then he departed and went from, place, uh, from one place to the next, throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So that is the third missionary, of, uh, missionary journey of Paul. This is the beginning of that trip. And here's what this is going to look like. Uh, he leaves Antioch. And he heads through Cilicia, through Galatia, and then through Phrygia. That's this region here. And so uh, basically all of these places, derby Iconium, Lystra, all these places he had gone. Uh, now this is his third time going to these places, uh, the churches he had already established. And it says there in verse 23, he was strengthening all the disciples uh, he was edifying the churches, he was teaching, he was training the leaders, maybe ordaining elders, things like that. Basically just structuring things and, and helping those churches to grow and to thrive. Uh, Paul didn't just kind of start churches and then leave them to, to do their own thing. He just kept coming back to them, uh, trying to provide oversight and help and, and leadership for those churches even years later. And so uh, by this time, we have Christians and we have churches really all over this whole region. Paul has established churches throughout uh, this region of modern-day Turkey, and then also over into Greece. Uh, Churches, Christians, all over this whole region. And so Paul goes from one place to the next, uh, visiting with the churches, strengthening them, uh, doing some teaching, making sure things are going well, maybe solving problems along the way. Uh, And so this really shows us the strategy of Paul for spreading the gospel and advancing the kingdom of Christ. He emphasized strong, healthy churches being established. So much so that with each one of these trips, he doesn't sail out to a new region. It's not like, you know, he leaves uh, Antioch and says, well, I've already been over here, so now I'm going to go over to Italy or something. uh, You know, kind of the next new place. No, Uh, Paul goes back to all the places he had already been. Because Paul's emphasis was on discipleship. Uh, He kept going back to those same churches, building them up. Because Paul understood that those churches that he had started in all those different places, they were going to continue reaching people with the gospel long after Paul was dead and gone. And so if he could help to establish strong churches with leaders who were well taught and trained, then they could reach the whole region with the gospel. Now at this point, Acts 18 uh, shifts away from Paul for a few verses. Basically, if you look at verse 23 and 24, you could insert right in between there. Meanwhile, over in Ephesus, because uh, this incident takes place while Paul is away. In his absence, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are here. They're starting the church back in the city of Ephesus. And Luke tells us in verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's over in Egypt, he had come to Ephesus He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So, this Apollos guy comes on the scene, and he is really something. Uh, This is someone who was very intelligent, uh, well-taught and trained in the Old Testament, very well-educated. Uh, he had been a disciple of John the Baptist, that great prophet who came right before Jesus. And we're told, in addition to all of that competence and education, that he was a very uh, wise and, and, and smart guy, apparently, that he was also a very gifted speaker. Uh, I think, as far as I know, he's the only person in Scripture that is has uh, given the term eloquent, that, he's told, uh, that we're told that he was an eloquent speaker. Uh, fervent in spirit, he was a very gifted teacher, and Apollos knew that Jesus was the Messiah. You see there that it says that he had taught accurately the things of Jesus. So John the Baptist had uh, basically transitioned his followers to follow Christ. you Remember that early in John's ministry, uh, John is preaching that, that, that a king is coming, uh, that the Messiah is going to be on the scene soon. And so John says basically to all of his followers when Jesus gets there, okay, forget me now, follow Jesus. Uh, he's the Messiah. He's the one I've been talking about. Uh, Over in John one twenty nine, you can read this. The next day, uh, speaking of John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Apollos, uh, being a disciple of John the Baptist, uh, he he was taught from John uh, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that they had been waiting for. And because of Apollos' background being so well taught and educated in the Hebrew scriptures, he's able to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. Uh, But there were some things Apollos did not yet know. Uh, The text is a bit ambiguous about what exactly he didn't know. It may be that he didn't even know that Jesus had died and risen again. Uh, perhaps he had been a, a disciple of John the Baptist. He had been taught about Jesus being the Messiah, but then maybe he left for for one reason or another and wasn't around Israel when Jesus died and rose again and so he's preaching that the Messiah has come without even knowing uh, that, that about the death and resurrection, or perhaps he did know maybe he did know that Jesus had died and had risen from the uh, risen again but Maybe he didn't know that Jesus had ascended to the right hand of God the Father and was ruling over his people as his kingdom was spreading throughout the world. Maybe he didn't know about the Great Commission, how Jesus had sent his followers out into all nations of the world to make disciples of Jesus. Almost certainly, Apollos didn't know about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, how people are being saved and baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how they're being filled with the Spirit of God who's transforming their day-to-day lives. So he knew some things. He knew the baptism of John, and he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, but he had not been present for the development of the church and some of the key events that we've seen in the book of Acts. And so knowing that who Jesus was, he was still missing some other key information. And so while Paul uh, Apollos was well-educated, very gifted in his teaching, uh, arguing, persuading people that Jesus was the Messiah, he didn't know the whole story. He was missing some pieces. And so when he comes to Ephesus, uh, he begins to teach in the synagogues, and Priscilla and Aquila heard him. And so Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, and they explain to him those things, those missing bits of information that he had not yet heard. Uh, Luke is very intentional in his language. If you glance back at verses 24 and 25, he points out that Apollos was teaching accurately. So uh, it's not that he was a false teacher saying things that weren't true. Uh, he was just had an incomplete message. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Excuse me. Now, uh, verse 26 is really a great way uh, to handle this situation. Notice, first of all, that Priscilla and Aquila did not rebuke Apollos publicly. Okay, They could have stood up in the synagogue and said, hey, wait just a minute. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we need to set you straight right here. Uh, that would have been very embarrassing for Apollos, very improper, and so they don't do that. Instead, they they let him you know, complete his teaching there, and they take him aside privately and explain to him some things that he was unaware of. Uh, sometimes I think we make enemies out of people with whom we disagree, Uh, when maybe a private conversation uh, might be all that's needed to straighten out the error, especially if it's just an honest mistake. And this tells us something also about the humility of Apollos. Uh, He was a very well-educated man. He was an eloquent speaker, gifted, very well-taught, very competent. But he was also very sincere. As soon as Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, uh, whatever it is, that the missing pieces of his theology, Apollos received their correction. Uh, it's hard to find competent, well-educated men who are also teachable. Uh, Apollos was one such man. He was willing to learn uh, from this husband and wife here in Ephesus that he didn't know. He would never met Priscilla and Aquila, uh, but here they are, and they, they say, hey, we'd like to talk to you about something, and he, he received their, their instruction and, and was benefited from it. And so the lesson for each of us there is to have the sensitivity of Priscilla and Aquila and to have the humility and teachability of Apollos. Uh, We here as a church ought to be able to lovingly correct one another. Uh, We can disagree charitably and discuss things that we may think differently about. Uh, Again, if you come here on Wednesday nights, that happens from time to time. Uh, We come across a passage of scripture or a, a subject that we may have a difference of opinion on we ought to be able to discuss that as Christians with humility and respect for one another. And uh, here in Acts 18, we have a great example of that. Uh, Then verses 27, 28, just to finish up the text here, it says, he wished, speaking of Apollos now, he wished to cross to Achaia. Uh, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he was greatly helped, I'm sorry, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So Basically, the church at Ephesus writes a letter to the church in Corinth, which is just across that little bit of uh, the sea there. And uh, they, they tell them, basically, Apollos is a good guy. He's, he knows the Bible. Welcome him. He's not a false teacher or anything like that. Uh, he's coming from us. And so they send kind of a letter of uh, commendation along with Apollos. And so Apollos comes to Corinth uh, there in Achaia. And verse 20, 28 says, He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, uh, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So you put 27 and 28 together, it uh, says there he was helping the church, he was helping disciple uh, the Christians who were there, and he was also powerfully publicly uh, debating with the Jews. Apollos had a great impact on the Corinthians. Uh, he's mentioned throughout the letters of Paul to, to the Corinthian church as having great influence over that church. Here shall Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? uh, This is Paul speaking. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Apollos became one of the key leaders here in the city of Corinth. Paul had brought the gospel to them initially. He had stayed there for a year and a half and helped really establish this church, but then Apollos comes on the scene to the city of Corinth, and he helps to further teach and edify the believers there. He helped the Christians as they were also facing some opposition from the Jews in Corinth. They were disputing uh, whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah. And so Apollos shows up there uh, having been taught by Priscilla and Aquila and having this uh, thorough grasp of the Old Testament. And with all of his fervency and eloquence, all of that combined to make Apollos a really powerful debater. And so he's able to publicly refute what the Jews are saying, and prove that Jesus was the Christ by showing them through their Old Testament scriptures how he fulfilled all of those prophecies. And so what we see in this text is that the kingdom of Christ is advancing, and it's a lot bigger than any one man. Uh, Paul wasn't doing all of this on his own. Luke was helping to lead the church in Philippi still. Uh, Timothy and Silas, there in Greece somewhere helping the churches there. Priscilla and Aquila are starting a church in Ephesus. And now Apollos shows up in Ephesus, and then he goes over to Corinth to help the church there. So Paul has effectively multiplied his influence by training leaders and raising up others to carry on his work and to advance the kingdom of Jesus. And so we learn from this text the importance of discipleship. Our job is not simply to convince people to become Christians and then leave it at that. Uh, We aren't supposed to be trying to go around making as many converts as possible, uh, so we've got a bunch of baby Christians all over. Uh, No, we're supposed to disciple people, uh, plant churches, teach and train people, uh, teach them the whole counsel of God. Paul spends a year and a half in the city of Corinth, and on each trip he goes back to these uh, same churches that he had established in the past. He teaches, he trains them further, because Paul's heart was to see them grow in their knowledge of Scripture and in what it means to follow Jesus in every area of life. And all of us need that. All of us need to be a part of a church family so that we can grow. Uh, Even some who seem to be well-educated in Scripture, somebody like Apollos, you would think he really knew his stuff, and yet still he had things to learn from others in the church. All of us ought to desire to grow and to mature in the Lord and to not think that we have it all figured out. We should see ourselves and our church as part of the larger family of God. This is another, I think, helpful perspective from this text. Our church is one of many Bible-believing churches all over the world that are helping to make disciples of Jesus. And sometimes our work is just to help develop and teach people for a period of time, and then God moves them around. We see that all over this text, whether it's Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos. People are just kind of being shuffled around And everywhere that they're going, they're helping the churches that they're going to. Uh, We've seen some of that sort of thing happen with our church recently. Uh, Rob and JJ left, of course, uh, just last week. I think it was their last Sunday here. Uh, Kathy uh, Rizzo moved away about, I guess, last year. Uh, Same sort of situation. They were here for a period of time. Uh, They were all baptized and saved here at our church. Uh, And then we've since then sent them off. Uh, Kathy's gone down to Texas, Rob and JJ to Indianapolis, and we pray that they will find churches and, and that they'll be established and growing and helpful to other Christians and other bodies of Christ around the world. And so our role sometimes as a church is just to help disciple period for the, uh, disciple people for the period of time that the Lord has them here. Uh, sometimes God just kind of moves people around and then they, they can go off and be a blessing to some other church. Our church is just one part of the broader kingdom of Christ and our goal is, Is not just to build our church, but to build the kingdom, and at times that involves sending others out. Lastly, I think we ought to be encouraged from this text that God uses all sorts of people. He uses doctors like Luke. Uh, He uses tent makers like Priscilla and Aquila. Now it's true, God also uses eloquent speakers like Apollos, Uh, people who are well-educated, gifted teachers. But God uses all sorts of people. We all have Gifts and abilities that the Lord can use to build His kingdom. For some, it may just be uh, building your, making your tents, working with your leather, and then uh, helping to fund the Lord's work. Uh, all of those Christians back in Antioch and, and Philippi that were funding these mi- missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, uh, they were regular working people that worked their nine-to-five jobs or whatever it was, and they gave financially to support Paul's ministry. And so Paul is going around, traveling, starting churches, but those people back home were playing a crucial role in his work. Paul could not have done all that he did without those people who were working and helping to support him financially. Uh, Paul had time to start these churches because of the financial support from others that freed him up. Uh, His travel wasn't cheap either. All of this sailing from one place to the next. Uh, Travel was very expensive during this time. Uh, Think about the letters of our New Testament. As Paul was writing these letters, uh, writing materials were also very expensive during this time. And so somebody had to pay for all of that. And so as much praise as we give to Paul and how we hold him in high regard for his work, and we ought to, there's a lot of tent makers and fishermen and farmers who were used along the way to help Paul in his work. They funded the whole thing. And so God used all kinds of people, God used people like Apollos to speak with eloquence, but he also used people like Priscilla and Aquila just to have a private conversation with a brother in the Lord and to help him grow in his understanding. He used them to start this little church in their home. They weren't apostles. Uh, They didn't go from place to place starting new churches and raising up leaders. They were normal people like you and I. And so this little portion of Acts 18, I think, helps us to gain some perspective uh, that the kingdom of Christ was growing and advancing in, in all sorts of places at once. And that it wasn't all through Paul. God was using and working through all sorts of people who were sharing Christ with others. Uh, many people that you and I will likely never know about. And yet, they had a huge role to play in the kingdom. And isn't that just like God? Uh, to use David to defeat Goliath. Uh, to use normal people like Priscilla and Aquila to start this great church at Ephesus. I wonder how the Lord might use you and I to advance his kingdom.